Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to venture a little bit out of Southwest Michigan today and explore some stories just north of us up in Cadillac, Michigan. And the connection to Southwest Michigan is a lot of the people that settled in the Cadillac area and some of these northern logging communities came from Southwest Michigan and other parts of Michigan as well. And I found this really wonderful book that was published on the early history of Cadillac, Michigan, and I just couldn't help myself with wanting to share it as one of the podcast episodes because it includes some incredible stories of the early pioneer era that mirrors a lot of what you would find in other logging communities in southwest Michigan. So come along and join me as we venture on up into some history of Cadillac, Michigan. So as I've mentioned before many times on this podcast, the early communities that were settled were built around typically milling. And the first mill that you would build when you were settling a community in a rugged, undeveloped country was to establish a sawmill. And this was usually a location that was scouted out for a source of power. So they would be looking for a river or water source that could give them a rapid flow of water. And it could be a river or a stream or it could be an area between two rivers or a river in another body of water that they could dig a canal, which was called a race, from a one elevation to another and create a faster rapid flow of water. So you have mill races that were formed in Calhoun County in various communities, for example, and there were mill races formed in communities over in Kalamazoo County, and some communities were able to take advantage of the fast rivers that were there. For example, Athens, Michigan had a mill right on the river of the Nottawa Creek, and there were a few mills along the Nottawa Creek going out into St. Joseph County. So you have this thinking process, which were a lot of the early settlers were millers that would come here for establishing a mill. After the first mills were established, the communities would either transform into more of an agricultural community as the timber was harvested in the area, and some did this faster than others. The northern counties above Grand Rapids were typically logging communities, and so they would have a lumber mill built in the area, but they would go logging up north and continue bringing logs to the mill, or west or east, depending on where the forests were. South Haven is a good example of the history of that industry, as it began as a logging community and as the timber was eventually harvested in the area over the 20, 30, 40 years, it transitioned into an agricultural community, concentrating greatly on fruit trees. And so South Haven had a deep history with the fruit growing industry from an early onset after it was established. So with Cadillac, it was a logging community at its foundation. And so the stories that I'm going to be reading to you today comes from a book that is not very large. It was a book published about the early pioneer history of Cadillac, and it's called Cadillac, Its Past, Present, and Future, a Symposium Collection. And it's available in the Michigan County Histories and Atlases section at the 
University of Michigan Library online. So if you're curious about finding that and reading it yourself, there's a lot of great photos in there. You can go to the University of Michigan Library online and find that in the Michigan County Histories Collections. So the first story in this collection was written by Mrs. George A. Mitchell, and she's telling about her early history in Cadillac, Michigan in 1872, and the title of her essay is My First Visit to Clam Lake. Now, the lake Cadillac was originally called Clam Lake, and it eventually changed to um, Cadillac as time went on. And she begins, It was in March 1872 I accepted Mr. Mitchell's invitation to visit Clam Lake, now Cadillac, it being then about six months old. We took the GR&I Road at Kendall, Indiana. So she's talking about the railroad. Came to Grand Rapids and remained overnight, and as Mr. Mitchell had business to attend to. Next morning, resumed our journey, as there was but one coach for the passengers, it was soon crowded full of men, but few women, and the further we came, the less in number. We passed through a new rough-looking country, and after leaving Reed City, there were no clearings, just tracks through a wilderness of tall pines. After much jolting about, we reached Clam Lake, tired and hungry. There were two places where food and lodging could be had. One was a log house near where the sash and blind factory now stands, and the other, also a log structure, but larger, stood just north of McCaddy and Company's foundry, fronting on Lake Street, and it was called the Mason House. There were very few divisions on the first floor, one sleeping room and the kitchen. The remainder was used for general purposes. Across one end was a long table with benches for seats where food was served, always the best the town afforded. On the upper floor, a small room was partitioned off for Mr. Mitchell, the remainder of the floor being occupied by beds. So very rustic and rugged living accommodations up in the early logging town of Cadillac, Michigan. So she continues, There were the usual buildings that start a town, the general store, blacksmith shop, and post office, with plenty of energy. My first visit was limited to a few days on account of the accommodations, but as the town grew rapidly, better accommodations could be found, and I enjoyed spending several weeks with Mr. Mitchell, particularly in summer. Finally, in December 1876, we decided to make Cadillac our home. The Presbyterians were the first church organization holding services over Berkshire's Meat Shop until that place became too small to hold the congregation. Then they moved over McCarty's Saloon and occupied it until the basement of the church was finished. During the summer, the church gatherings, when the weather permitted, were held on a scow, which was decorated with evergreens, lighted with lanterns, and towed out into the lake by the tug grapevine. So I found that very interesting that they would uh, hold church services on a scow that they tugged out into the middle of the lake. That's uh, very special. About the first thing that the society did after securing the city today was to establish a church social. And that pretty much wraps up what she wrote in her essay. There was another long poem that she put at the end of it, but I'm not going to read that here. The next essay is called A Day in the Lumber Woods by Alicide Jovelet. Ever been in a lumber camp? And when I say 
camp, I mean woods, too. Let every jolly holiday reader who has never been there raise a hand, and a fellow who has been in such a camp in wood will tell you how it works, provided also that those mirthful pursuers who have been there may hear it, too. Lo, now will arise in the mind's eye of every one of the latter fellows, be he male or female, a vision of days departed. Oh, shades of Jerry Ryan and Bowlegged Smith. I had almost added Doc Blodgett. Perhaps it is on the bank of the Indian-haunted Muskegon they see, in memory, a shake-roof shanty, 25 by 50, building of pine logs. Those cracks are stuffed with moss and bedbugs, most solemnly declared to be native to the Norway bark. To the eye of an artist, the ideal of the picturesque with the ends of the logs alternating across, showing their white and year-ringed sections against the dark bark, the low, broad entrance with its broad door or wooden hinges and latch, all framed by noble, tampering stems and dark evergreen tops of the gallant old pines. To the ear, like a vast orchestra of Elonian harps, swept with music as moonful as the varying wind. All that to an artist, but to Pete, Ole, and Jack, a shelter which every night opened hot, comfortably miserable, with an atmosphere of boot-pack, sock, and mitten steam, tobacco smoke, and three or four foreign languages through which could be seen long rows of bunks. From muddy floor to the top log under the rafters filled with marsh hay, two coarse blankets, darkness, and nameless insects mysteries. One vignette, the cook shanty, rough smoke logs, yellow light, Rude table, benches, iron kettled knives, tin plates and basins, fat pork, beans, bread, peas, black coffee, perhaps an undertone of fried cakes and pie of doubtful composition. But avant, vanish, we can conjure up a fairer existing scene. To make it handy, we will take the C and N and E from Cadillac over the rail behind a modern logging team, brain and steam. Stop, for instance, at the Cummer Camp on Section 15 in Herring Township. We have got used to calling these little villages of their planed houses neat and warm camps. Excuse the term. The engine runs our empties up to the loading place. The morning sun rays level at the tall tops on every side, and the fun begins. There is a woe backing of Mike and Pat, the big iron grays, a rattling undoing of binding chain, a scoot of skids on sway bars throwing off the loading chain, a number of dextrons can't hook flips, and the bunks are full. Another tier of logs top those, and another. Now for top loading, that is, putting the peaks on the pyramid of logs. A marvel of agility and manly proportion in knit, torque, red undershirt, a cold day. I know that look of moisture on the brown mug. Gray pants, spiked drive boots, presides over the top of that growing load. Chain over! The ruler of the gray fastens the binding chain around the top bar. Little too tight, Gus. All right, there she slacks. Ready for the binding logs. On that chain. One, two, more up. Up that log skids. Swamp. 
swamp hook a top log, load chain around logs on skids, under the back to swamp hook, team on the other end already, get up, pat Mike, up to half pitch, Majesty rolls the big stick. Whoop! yells the bronze mug. The gray digs their shoes in the ground and the log stops halfway up. All right, she's straight. This agile gentleman of our acquaintance is the top loader. And he is located, as usual, alert and cool on top of that cone, waiting for that apex log that can't hook, that seems a living part of him. So that basically describes how they loaded the trains. And apparently they would load them flat logs going a long ways, and then when they got to the top, they would start uh, making a peak until the top log was loaded, forming a, uh, a peak. So they could get the maximum amount of logs on there without them being at risk of tumbling off. And then they would throw a chain over the top to uh, hold it and secure it down. Uh, that's my understanding from what he was describing very colorfully in this piece. By the way, this publication was published in 1892 in Cadillac. The next essay that I'm going to read a little bit from is Cadillac's Business Stability, written by E.E. E. Haskins. We often hear conjectures as to the reason why prices on real estate in Cadillac remain so firm and stable, and to the casual observer, it is beyond explanation. But while it is nonetheless a wonderful fact that the city has survived two serious bank failures, followed by an extended periods of business depression, and all this accompanied with the recognized fact that the pine forests were every day becoming thinner and more transparent, prices of real estate in the city and vicinity have not only remained firm, but have had and still have an upward tendency. A dozen years' experience with Cadillac real estate transfers, however, furnishes a solution of the puzzle, and the steadiness of values here may be confidently attributed to the prevalence of the feeling, which is referred to as in the proverb that a contented mind is a continual feast. What a great proverb. A contented mind is a continual feast. That's a great one. And without trenching upon the grounds of the sentimentalist at all, but basing the assertion upon cold facts alone, it will be readily seen that the satisfied feeling pervading our community sufficiently accounts for the past, present, and prospective stability in values of holdings in the city and vicinity. This does not mean that wherever a number of self-satisfied, contented-minded people may locate that real estate values in that vicinity become of necessary, fixed, and permanent. That proposition presupposes men so constituted that they may be satisfied with their situation irrespective of their surroundings, while the satisfaction here referred to, and which is so universal with our citizens of Cadillac, does not come from within the citizens, but within the inevitable result of his pleasant surroundings and favorable conditions of life here. Of course, there is an occasional one that nothing could please. One of that sort, if given title deeds to one of the many mansions, could claim that the clouds below made his cellars damp, and if donated another, 
It would insist that it was too near Hades, and it dimmed the gold waistcottings and crackle of the jasper. We have so few of the croaker element here, however, that, that they only act as an impetus to the rest. I love how they refer to the people that complain within a community as a croaker. What a great word. As a whole, our citizens know a good thing when they see it, as the expression goes, and are not slow to lay hold of it, and having it in hand, they propose to keep it. That is the kind of satisfaction or content we mean when we say that is the satisfied feeling prevalent here which gives values fixedness. And that's all I'm going to read of that essay. Very interesting insight into some of the business and mindset of the early people that were settling in the community at this point, and realize again that this was published in 1892. So the final story that I'm going to read was written by George Doxey, and it's called Incidents in a Landlooker's Life. And he's talking about here his role as a surveyor, going out into the woods to find the marks made by the government surveyors that had come many, many years before and established the initial survey lines throughout a county or township. And those original surveys were usually very broad stroke survey lines that were put onto a county's mapping when they were laying out the basic counties originally. And these other new surveyors would come out and look for these marks so they could establish the boundary lines for different parcels within those areas. So this is somewhat of what he was doing here and he's describing. So he begins, Among the callings and professions peculiar to lumbering regions is that of estimator, commonly called the land looker. He strikes out into the unbroken forest and frequently packs it, for days over miles and miles towards his descriptions, apparently following no given direction except a general one, and perhaps apparently following no given direction except a general run, and which perhaps only the rising and setting sun has pointed out to him. And without seeing during the time a living thing, save the untamed birds and beasts of the forest, upon nearing his journey's end, he evinces... For the first time, a purpose and method to his wanderings. He keeps a sharp lookout on all sides of him until he sees a little axe mark on the side of a tree, made evidently years before and now distinguishable only to the practice eye. Here the estimator brings from a convenient pocket his compass and taking his position at the blazed tree, he consults his little magnetic guide. Blazes in trees are these chopped out sections on the bark to mark a trail or notate a boundary line. And so the government surveyors would come through and put a blaze on a tree, indicating that was the boundary line on their grid search map. It tells him at once whether the tree stands on the east and west or a north and south government survey line. That fact being established by the location of the blaze on the tree, he starts off guided by his compass and soon sees another tree in his path with a similar blaze. Indeed, he finds a line of them, which he follows keeping a wary eye out for witness trees, which mark a section corner or a quarter post. The experienced woodsman soon finds them, and he finds on them certain cannibalistic characters he calls the government scribe, 
which tells him his position, his distance from home, and from his journey's end. If the latter is near, we see him gather perhaps a handful of chips or pebbles and again takes up his line of march, following blazed trees, making occasional right-angle turns until he is located on the land sought. On his way, he has dropped the chips or pebbles one at a time at regular intervals, and when all are gone, he again looks for witness trees, for the dropping of each clip has marked so many steps, and the last one should be near another section corner. Very interesting procedure. So they had these corner trees with etched-in markings on them that they called witness trees, and these were the corner lines of crossings of uh, parcels that they laid out, you would say, or uh, grid maps. And so they would be able to know that if they walked in the line of the trees, knowing which side of the blaze to walk on and to look for the other one, they could find uh, the next tree. And eventually they'd come to a witness tree, and then between witness trees they would know there's a certain amount of distance between each one, and they used it by dropping a stone or chip of wood um, with a certain number of them between each witness tree. That's very fascinating. He goes on to say, His duties consist in determining the amount and quantity of timber upon the land, the facilities for logging, and the shape or the surface. To perform these duties faithfully and satisfactorily requires good judgment and experience in both logging operations and in the manufacture of lumber. His work is recorded in a book carried for the purpose, and upon the completion of a long job, this little book becomes a valuable document. So that just basically tells you the history and the story of what an estimator did when he went out in the woods. He would follow and look for the government-marked lines, and then he'd find the boundaries of this section of land, and he'd make an estimate of the amount of timber in that area of land based on his calculations of observations of walking the section, but also using his experience and the lumbering industry, factoring in the sizes of this, the trees that were on the land and uh, the different amount of clearings and so forth, so they could get a determination of the value of timber on a parcel of land. Very fascinating history to look back at and uh, tells you a lot of information about how they did things back in the day before they had all of the measuring equipment that we have today and all of the fancy surveying equipment that have developed over the years since then. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. I thought I'd tell you these little stories about some of the logging camp history of Cadillac, Michigan, from this wonderful book called Cadillac, It's Past, Present, and Future, a symposium collection. And once again, it was published in 1892. A lot of interesting stories within the collection, and it's only about 64 pages long. So I'll put the link on where you can find the copy of the book in the description of this podcast if you want to download it and read it yourself. A lot of great photos of the early buildings in Cadillac, and it just gives you kind of a snapshot of a logging community over various years, as well as some of the roles of people in that industry, like the estimators that would go out in the woods for days and days at a time to find the boundary lines for upcoming logging operations. Very fascinating history. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review or maybe take one of those little surveys on the end of this episode and tell me what you thought. Share the podcast with others. Go on over to Facebook and follow me on the Michael Delaware author page. 
And of course, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening. <music>